Hey, everybody, I'm Paul Wilkie. And I'm David Oro. And you're listening to The Embargoed, the greatest PR podcast of all time. Damn straight. There's always something to talk about and a point to make. And we're going to do it when we want, which is usually every other week. Whether it's tech, business, sports, music, or your mama, we're going to cover it. All of it comes from the point of view of public relations, reputation, and communications. We are all about punching stodgy PR in the face. That's right. So sit back, strap in, and let's get it on. Hey, everyone. Today is Thursday, June, July 14th. <laughs> Thanks for telling me the date, Paul. 2022. Uh, I'm David Oro, and I'm here with my co-host, Paul Wilkie. Paul, how's it going? Hey there. How's it going, folks? All right. This is what happens when you don't change the script and you have the old date on the script. <laughs> it is July 14th. We're right in the middle of summer, man. Uh, how are you doing down there in Palm Springs? It's it's hot. It's actually the coldest day, coldest day of the week at 105 degrees. So, uh, <laughs> and, and, and where, where is it? Where What's the temperature where you are in American Canyon? I'm going to hit uh, a high of 78 today, Paul. Ooh, that's like sweater weather. I got my free air conditioning going on here in the Bay Area. It's awesome. Hey, listen, today we got a show. This is what, our third, fourth show? They're third together. Third together. Man, dude, we're rolling. <laughs> um, I uh, came across something this week, and our topic today I thought would be what makes a great spokesperson or what makes a bad one or being becoming a good spokesperson. Uh, and you're like, okay, let's talk about that. And I think that's what we're going to talk about today. And kind of share and drop a little bit of knowledge because it's one of those things that when I work with executives or entrepreneurs or anybody who's never been in front of a journalist or a camera, it kind of worries them the most. And there's a lot of bad examples out there, but there's a lot of people with good examples out there. And that's what we're going to explore today. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the things that, you know, we do at Upright, we do a lot on, on IPO communications. And I will say most of the IPOs that we've done, the CEO has pulled me aside like week before IPO day and said, give me something funny to say. Give me something witty to say when I'm on the interview. And, and my counsel is, no, I'm not going to give you anything funny to say you're going to sound like an idiot. And bottom line, you know, people just want to make sure the CEO of a company has got his or, you know, his or her head on screwed on, screwed on right. So um, you don't, a good spokesperson isn't always funny. And I think one of the things that we're going to talk about today is, you know, what makes a good spokesperson? Why does he or she do well? And, you know, what can you take away from some of the, some of the people we talk about today? You know what, Paul? It's very hard to be funny. <laughs> if you can force yourself to be funny, it's not going to come across well. It's very hard to be funny. Let, let's start out with a great spokesperson. And this guy, I've been watching him um, speak in the past. His name, I, I believe he was running for president. No, no. He, That's right. He ran for president. Yeah. He was the transportation secretary, the U.S. transportation secretary under the Biden administration. His name is Pete Buttigieg. Now, Pete is an openly gay man, married. I think they just had two kids. Uh, he's a Democrat. And uh, he leans left. But he goes on to Fox News on a regular basis. Um, you know, and if you're what others, whatever side you're in the aisle you're on, if you're a Democrat, 
That is the lion's den going on Fox News. And so, Paul, let's play this clip because it's a great example of how you do an inner, a very tough interview in a hostile environment and uh, kind of deliver your messages and get your story across at the same time. The tweet reads, sounds like he just wanted some privacy to make his own dining decisions. Is that appropriate, sir? Look, when uh, public officials go into public life, we, we should expect two things. One, you should always be free from violence, harassment, and intimidation. And two, you're never going to be free from criticism or peaceful protest, people exercising their First Amendment rights. Okay. And that's what happened in this case. Remember, the justice never even came into contact with these protesters, uh, reportedly didn't see or hear them. And these protesters are upset because a right, an important right, that the majority of Americans support was taken away. Understood. Not only the right to choose, by the way, but, but this justice was part of the process of stripping away the right to privacy. As long as I've been alive, settled but, case law in the United States has been that the Constitution protected a right to privacy. And that has now been thrown out the window by justices, including Justice Kavanaugh, who, as I recall, swore up and down in front of God and everyone, including the United States Congress, that they were going to leave settled case law alone. So, yes, people are upset. They're going to exercise their First okay. Amendment rights. And as long as that's peaceful, that's protected. Compare that, for example, to the reality that as a country right now, we're reckoning with the fact that a mob summoned by the former president All right, well, let me follow up, Mr. attacked the United States Capitol for the purpose of overthrowing the election and very nearly succeeded in preventing the peaceful transfer of power. But I think common sense can tell the difference. But as a high-profile public figure, sir, are you comfortable with protesters protesting when you and your husband go to dinner at a restaurant? Protesting peacefully outside in a public space? Sure. Look, I can't even tell you the number of spaces, venues, and scenarios where I've been protested. And, and the bottom line is this. Any public figure should always, always be free from violence, intimidation, and harassment, but should never be free from criticism or people exercising their First Amendment rights. I thought that was a pretty good uh, way to take on a pretty touchy subject. Not even touchy. It's it's a passionate subject right now yeah. in American discourse, right? Yeah. Um, and I think he did a really good job there. And I think the reporter wanted him to say something else and you could hear the reporter going but 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 pete kept holding on holding his line to get his point across i think a lot of spokespeople forget that they can control that interview right they they have to answer this question and they forget they can control it uh which is totally different from rambling on right i've seen i've seen spokespeople ramble on they, they made their point they should get out pete was really trying to make a point there and he held his line on that one and the great thing about pete here and this is one of the things you want to you want to sort of take away from this clip is he's respectful he never raises his voice he never he never goes to interrupt um and that's hard to do on a topic that's passionate as this yeah he spoke he spoke confidently, and it's it's about preparation. A lot of it's about preparation, but he also took that question and and dissected it and, and separated it to two points. And he made his two points. He separated the two things together. One was um, 
the right for public officials to be criticized and the right for them to be safe. Mm-hmm. And those are two fundamentally very strong things that need to happen in civil discourse, right? You need to not kill the person that you're criticizing, <laughs> right? You need not to storm the capital of the United States to do something. But you need to be able to criticize it. And, and they need to be able to take that because, you know, this, in, the, in that world, it is about discourse and discussion and feelings and different ideas of um, policy and where things are headed. By separating that, though, he basically was able to um, get out of the gotcha trap that I think Fox was headed with that that your husband said something inappropriate. How do you feel about that? And it's really, he didn't say anything inappropriate. He gave an opinion, a criticism, and uh, in no way was he harming that person. Yeah, and one of the things, and you touched on this for, you know, you know, this, you know right after we played the clip, and it, it, it's worth repeating and worth highlighting because a lot of us and a lot of our clients aren't going to go on Fox News to talk about something controversial, usually about your company or your platform or something. But one of the things that's important to remember is when you're being interviewed, you're the subject matter expert. They're reaching out to you to get your opinion, your take, your insight. So whatever you say there is going to have a lot of weight to it and you have control of what you say. So it's a lot more effective if you only have two or three points that you're really trying to make. You make those points and you get out of there. Yeah. The other thing he did was, if you listen, if you watch the reporter's question, he was trying to attack Pete's husband and really attack the issue of, of their position. Uh, and he didn't get the answer he wanted in the first one because Pete just kind of knocked it down. The follow-up question was the same question said differently. And Pete repeated what he just said in a more succinct form. It's about safety. It's about criticism, right? You can criticize, keep them safe. Those were the two things. He said it twice. One time he said it in a long way with a lot of context. The second time he was like, I already answered this question. We'll say it again. And I think it's okay to reiterate that at times, right? This is, and this one, this is a live on-air interview. You've got maybe a three to six minute segment. And there's probably a ton of questions. This was just one of the questions in that segment. There's not a lot of time for journalists to do a follow-up. Paul, you and I worked in Asia for a while, right? We watched CNBC in the morning doing PR, the star uh, desk guy there, Bernie Lowe. Remember yeah. Bernie Lowe? He was great. Yeah, he was great. Dude never asked a follow-up question. Yeah. He never asked a follow-up question. And all the times that we went there, and he had like five or six that he was going to get through because he had like five minutes in the morning to get through certain um, executive, usually from where I was working, it was an American executive visiting the region, get him on the show. And in our thing, it's like, if you screw this up, don't worry about it. He's not going to ask a follow-up question. He does not come back to it because he's got his list to go through there. 
it's pretty amazing to watch when you start to pay attention to some of that stuff. We're going to get the green today. We're, we're talking about, we're going to be into a lot of politics today. And one of the things sort of the flip side, and I'll, and I'll play this clip. Uh, you'll, you, the viewers at home will, will see it. And, and Dave and I can talk about it real quick is on the flip side is don't get lulled into safety when you think you're with a friendly anchor. Uh, and the clip I'm going to show you right now is Rudy Giuliani talking to a reporter on Fox News, you can tell he wasn't prepared. He wasn't. Uh, he wasn't expecting hard questions, and this wasn't a particularly hard question. But you know, he stumbles, and which is the exact opposite of what what Pete did. He was prepared. He knew what he wanted to say. He knew he was going to face a tough reporter, so he was prepared. Having 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 something to do with paying some Stormy Daniels woman one hundred thirty thousand. I mean, which is going to turn out to be perfectly legal. So, so they, they funneled it through the law firm. Funneled through the law firm, and the president repaid it. Oh, I didn't know he did. Yep. There's no campaign finance law. Zero. Everybody, everybody was nervous about this from the very beginning. I wasn't. I knew how much money Donald Trump put into that campaign. I said 130,000. He's going to do a couple of checks for 130,000. When I heard uh, Cohen's uh, retainer of 35,000, when he was doing no work for the president, mm. I said, "But that's how he's repaying." That's how, we, how's he, how he's repaying it, with a little profit and a little margin for paying taxes for Michael. The Look, president, but do you know the president didn't know about this? Uh, I believe I, that's what he didn't Michael know about said. the specifics of it, as far as I know. But he did know about the general arrangement that Michael would take care of things like this, like I take care of things like this for my clients. So that's Rudy being Rudy. So David, um, who do you like as a spokesperson? Yeah. So first of all, if we're going to stay in the politics front, Jen Psaki, former White House press secretary, bow down to her. I, I, I She was one of the best spokespeople ever. <laughs> like literally, it was great. I was sad to see her go. I actually haven't followed her to her new gig at MSNBC, but she was great at, you could see, I mean, just by the stack of the briefing books that she brought, she was prepared for every question that anybody in that White House pre briefing room would would answer. But she was also, what I liked about her, she knew the answer. If she didn't know the answer, she would offer to get back to them because that's okay to do, even if you're criticized for it, because you don't want to, you don't have to give an answer if you don't know it. And in fact, you shouldn't be given an answer if you don't know the answer to the question. But more importantly, she pushed back on false claims and things of that nature that, often happens in politics. On the business front, I had the opportunity to watch him for several years directly on his earnings conference calls and any other interview he did. And that was uh, former Cisco CEO, John Chambers. Uh, he had a lot going for him in terms of how he delivered news. A lot of it is West Virginia accent. Um, it was just really charming and sounding, but he was also very smart and and, and energetic in delivering that. In fact, I was just reviewing a few of his clips today. He's still out there trying to talk about the future of technology and where things are headed. And you can just, you feel the passion come out of him. And, and I've seen him many times and I was trying to look for the video earlier of him actually also controlling the interview with journalists. He was always very well prepared. What about you, Paul? Who do you like? 
Well, since I knew we were, we, I knew we were dipping our feet into the political water, which is not my forte. I reached out to um, to Mark Halpern, who is uh, a political analyst, and you know wrote uh, Game Change, and you know he's been you know, been covering this space for a while. And I asked him, who do you like in terms of who are some of the best spokespeople you dealt with? And he 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 actually said to me was uh, Mike McCurry, who was White House uh, press secretary under President Clinton, uh, Ari Fleischer. Uh, who was press secretary under uh, W, and then uh, Margaret Tutwiler, who was uh, White House um, Department of Communications under W as well. So that was some interesting game, interesting insight from uh, the author of Game Change. And then on the corporate side, there are two that I really like. One, one's a former client with uh, was uh, James Joaquin at Obvious Ventures, their VC firm here in the Bay Area. Um, you could put him. You could just put him in front of a camera, charismatic, stuck to the message, knew what he wanted to say, knew you know, knew how to get the point across in a way that was just charming and effective. And a lot of CEOs don't have that much charisma. Um, the second one is um, Jack Ma, who was the uh, former CEO of Alibaba. He, you know, English is in his first language. And, you know, um, on IPO day, when uh, Alibaba listed, he gave a masterclass in interviewing where he, he answered questions before they even asked them. So he could, he could tackle the tough issues in the way that he wanted to. That's good. I, I, of, of all those you named, I've seen Jock Ma in action. And, uh, you know, for him and for everything that he built and done, it was kind of amazing. Um, I do know one of his early comms guys, Porter, uh, if you're out there listening, hello. <laughs> yeah, Porter actually wrote a book about being an American working in China for Alibaba in the early days. It's a really good book. Um, Ari Fleischer, I, I agree with that. The other guys I didn't really pay too much attention to, but there's also bad spokespeople out there. <laughs> and I've seen it many times and you know, Paul, I should have saved for years. You know, we do this for a long time and we've come across videos of bad spokespeople messing it up, not being prepared, uh, not understanding the moment that they're in. And usually it's a lot of lack of preparation. Um, but even if they're prepared, some people are combative too. And you don't need to do that. And so I think we got two examples. Let's go the political route first. But back when he was in the Trump camp, um, uh, Michael Cohen was on CNN during the election, you know, during the 2016 election where, where um, you know, all the polls had, you know, Trump behind. So this is, this was the interview where he was, you know, he was, he was on camera and talking about it. But you guys are down and it makes Says sense who? that there would. Says who? Most of them, all of them. Says who? Polls. I just told you I answered your question. Okay. Which polls? All of them. Okay. And your okay. question is? So I guess what my real question is here that I did not get to get to is what is the point of this? If you're calling it an expansion of, of winners, as you put it, working on the campaign, what is it about? What, to, what, to what end? 
Well, I think bringing on somebody like Kellyanne Conway was a great move, and it was something, personally, I would have liked to have seen happen earlier. You use teleprompters just because it keeps you on your message. But these are Donald Trump's words. He's going to stay true to who he is, and he's going to end up, in all fairness, he's going to end up winning this election come November because people are seeing through the nonsense. <laughs> Paul, I'll let you go first on that one because I, I got I got several thoughts on it. Oh, it's just you know you know it wasn't wrong, but you know just that that about a minute into the interview that that pause that felt like a minute was just unbearable. And I don't care who you are, but you do not want to go on an interview, and you don't want to piss off the journalist. Um, but man, it's just—it's yeah, well, crazy television. Yeah, well, I—I—I I, I tell you what, you know, it was combative for sure. A couple of things that I saw. First of all, uh, hindsight shows me that that dude's eating crow, and he's got his tail between his legs. He does not talk with that sort of strength. I think in terms of for what? What you gonna do to me? You know, I'm the wise guy. He's not like that anymore, right? You know, and. Uh, probably speaks to the culture of his boss and how he was treated in that organization or who he thought he was in that world. And then the other thing, you know, was just that, that those long pauses, I, I think he gave up too soon. He asked for what she paused, he paused. And then he said, for what again, personally, I would have been like, I just let that silence ride because it's her show. <laughs> Yeah, he has to answer me. I'm not going to give up here, right? So one of these like negotiating techniques where sometimes you just use silence as a strategy or a tactic to just get what you want. And uh, I'm I'm not sure she he he had knocked her back off her feet a little bit, and she didn't know where to go next. Uh, that that's remarkable. I, I haven't even looked about that looked at that in a while. You know, he they did win the election. Uh, but I, it's, and, 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 and he did say that Donald Trump can say whatever he wants, which he did, but in the end, he didn't get back into office and we're not, we're, we're still feeling the effects of all that. But that whole interview felt a little uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, time has been kind to, to the accuracy of what he was saying, but I got to bet when he got back to the office, he, uh, he got an earful from somebody or several people. Yeah. All right. On the business front, there's another example here. Uh, one of the one of the icons in the tech industry in the venture capital world is a guy named Mark Andreessen. Uh, Mark has been in here forever. De developed the uh, Mosaic web browser, which turned into everything like Chrome, Safari, and and Internet Explorer, and all that uh, when they started Netscape. Then he started other companies, and now he's at Andreessen Horowitz, the venerable um, VC firm that has billions of dollars. They're spending a lot in crypto and what they call Web 3.0. We were on a podcast recently and was asked to simply explain the benefits of Web 3.0 for us. It's what makes it better at this time. And... You know, when you get asked something 
that you're invested in, either a product, a person, a technology, a movement, you have to be able to explain it very quickly. You know, in our PR books, we call it elevator pitch. <laughs> and uh, he did not nail it. So you want to play that clip for us? Um, I'm hoping, for example, for podcasts, I'm hoping five years from now, there will be these thriving, you know, call it Web3 podcast environments that will be open and will be, you know, will have the sort of anarchic, uncontrolled kind of element that I think that I think you and I both like. Um, however, we'll have a higher level of trust and we'll have a higher level of monetary incentive and economic incentive um, than, than the open networks of the past usually did. And so there, there's this there's this third way. And, it, you know, this is still early, but like we're, 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 we're quite optimistic that there might be a new way to build these systems. And I'm, I'm excited to see what happens. Why is this a better podcast if it's done through Web 3.0? Why can't we just well, put it most, out there? Yeah, well, the most obvious thing is just money. Um, you just you don't get paid. How does someone like Rogan? It doesn't have to be him but a well-known podcast host. How does that person get paid in a better way through Web 3.0? Make that more concrete for us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean they, they, pick, they can pick their business model. I mean, they can pick their business model. They can decide, you know, subscription-based business model, you know, micro microtransactions. They can pick, you know, they can pick whatever model they want. Um, you know, they can also have indirect, you know, there's this whole, this whole new rise of this kind of the, the, the non-fungible token, um, you know, kind of this idea of unique digital assets. There's, you know, completely different monetization methods that are opening up for media. Um, you know, it's entirely possible in the future, for example, you, you'll have entire, you know, forms of media like video games and sporting events and music and so forth that will monetize in completely different ways through the creation of, you know, unique digital property, you know, that gets sold and, and, uh, and, and trades. Um, and so you, you, it's, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's, look, it's injecting, it's injecting economics. It's injecting at a very fundamental level, kind of internet native money, internet native economics and, and incentives uh, into a system that, that simply hasn't had that. And of course, this isn't to say that everything needs to cost money. This isn't to say that lots of people won't choose to have things be free. Um, but the ability to the, put it this way, the hard decision between free, uh, the hard decision between, let's say, total independence and no money, um, and then having a traditional contractual relationship with one company like that, that shouldn't be the trade off. There should be lots of room in the middle for experimentation. And that's that's the zone we're heading into now. But as a percentage of GDP, they sound like really tiny advantages. So the percentage of GDP, I mean, it's a percentage of GDP, like everything is tiny compared to like healthcare. Um, so, so, I mean, the, the media industry is quite small, right? Like if you just, if you look at slice of, per, a slice of percentage of GDP, like it's actually, turns out, it's actually really interesting. Like video games, it turns out is actually quite large, but like yes. you know, television, print, you know, newspapers, newspapers, you know, have always been a tiny slice of GDP. Like magazines have always been a tiny slice. Book publishing has always been a tiny slice, you know, but they're tiny slices that really matter. So... <laughs> What are the advantages of Web3? That was the real question here. And listen, I, I haven't really done much crypto work or Web3 work. I've looked at blockchain in terms of a technology, and I've seen that as a really cool thing in terms of applying some technology stuff, but really hard to explain where Web3 and crypto has gone now. You know, Mark Andreessen, what he does he uses vague terminology to make it sound smart, right? You know, he's, uh, you know, five years from now, he's hoping that Web3 podcast environments will be open. It's kind of open now, dude. I get to put my own sort of podcast out there wherever. And then and what he says, we'll have this anarchic, uncontrolled kind of element that I think you and I both like. The fact well, that I get to do a podcast means that it's anarchic, <laughs> uncontrolled, right? You well, know, 
<laughs> I got to tell you, I was all set to put this podcast on Web3 until I saw that interview. <laughs> I understood it before. Now I don't. But it was just spinning wheels, honestly, you know, about the early days of technology experimentation to unlock new monetization efforts. Uh, we'll do this in different ways, unique digital property. There wasn't there. And then the end of the conversation turned into him talking about, um, you know, GDP, right? Which you can rip on for a very long way. There was just no case for it. And if you're going to be, you know, the head of the crypto investing and things like that, could have nailed it. I, I, I just feel like at this time they should have had an answer of what are the advantages of Web 3.0, and they did not have it. One of the things we always try to tell clients is, you know, make your technology understandable. Use anecdotes that are easy to understand. And unfortunately, Mark. Mark held on to that rule like a life raft to the point where you know he actually used too many examples and they were convoluted examples. It was a tough one to watch simply because it, there were there was a lot there to unwrap, and they you know neither interviewer nor the person being interviewed did a great job of trying to trying to crystallize it. You know we're coming up on time here. Let's leave some folks with some tips here. Yeah, uh, for me, PR people prepare briefing docs for you about the reporter, the publication, the program, the interview format, the audience, potential questions, right? Some key messages you have to deliver. There's some time put into that. And if it's a good briefing document, you'll know exactly what you're walking into. Read the damn briefing document and put it together. And if, they, if it's not to your liking, call your PR person and say, I have some questions about this. You're gonna wanna know the goal for your interview. Um, whether it be a product launch, maybe a point to make uh, a, a position to get across, know your goal, try to get there. Um, you know, I think when, when we looked at the early example of Pete Buttigieg, he, he knew what he was walking into and uh, he knew that the, the points are he was well prepared. You should always be preparing yourself for easy and hard questions, right? There's going to be like, hey, what did you do today? Well, I, had, I went for a run. <laughs> uh, uh, then there's going to be some very hard questions, you know. Well, why were you indicted? I don't know, right? You gotta be, <laughs> you gotta be ready for those, right? There's a bunch of techniques that you can use for being a good spokesperson. You, you should, you are. If you've never done media training, take it. Um, all PR agencies offer it. It is. I always like to call it, you know, it, it's not necessarily media training. It's spokesperson training. It, it's presentation training. If you can do the things that you can do um, as a spokesperson, what a good spokesperson does, you can command any room. Speaking in headlines, building pyramids, and telling details of a story later on. That's what all good storytellers do. That's what all good spokespeople do. It's a very, very valuable uh, thing to, to learn. And being good at interviews, it, it's not rocket science, but it you can't overthink it. And you know, I think some of the some of the examples, some of the bad examples we show are often either people overthinking it or not being prepared. And that's the common thread through all of those. One of the things we wanted to talk about today is someone you and I have both worked with, uh, who who announced this week that he's uh, he's stepping down, and that's uh, Paul Cohen at Visa, who was uh, chief communications officer. Um, Paul Cohen, with... I love that guy, dude. <laughs> now you worked with him before I did. 
But yeah, Flash McHale, isn't he like the nicest guy in the world? He is the nicest guy in the world. And one of the things I love about him as a spokesperson, he was he was Visa's spokesperson for many years, and he was also head of communications there for a number of years, is, you know, he was great at not saying anything when you didn't need to say anything. You know, Visa was probably the first company that I worked for where we didn't need to respond to every media inquiry. We didn't need to, we didn't want to. And I think one of Paul's superpowers was, you know, we don't need to respond to this one. And when we do need to respond to it, he was very thoughtful and put a really good, put really good messaging behind whatever we whatever we said externally. Yeah, Paul Paul was really good. I mean, like, these are high pressure jobs in some places and doing it decent in other places. He just, he, I could just see him. He was almost like a Zen like presence walking through the offices in terms of what was going on. And I don't, I don't know how he kept it together for so long, but he did it. And that's, that's his personality. We should all be more like Paul. Congratulations, <laughs> Paul, on your career if you're ever listening to this. So good job. <laughs> Indeed, Paul, you're, the, the, the communications industry is going to miss you. Yeah. Well, the other Paul, Wilkie here, thanks for doing this show with me. Uh, I Thank think you, we're, David. we're doing this pretty well. well. We'll be a few more weeks before we get to the next one, but I think we're going to have our first guest on that show. I'm looking forward to it. Something yeah. we talked about before. Yeah. As long as she doesn't flake on us at the last minute, we <laughs> have a show. Well, which reminds me, have we, have we heard from Kathy Ireland's people yet? Just not since the second, not since the first show, but hey, you know, she'll get on one day. Kathy Ireland, we'll get her. Kathy Ireland is with us in spirit all the time, so she's <laughs> all right, Paul. You have a great week, man. You too. Good, good talking to you. Good seeing all of you, everybody. Bye bye.